Previously on Healed. He has decided this entire case, this entire city, this entire nation is waiting for the Chuck Jones trial. There was a big investigation over why this case was even brought. Trump was friends with Morgenthau. There was a lot of political pressure. Yes, Robert M. Morgenthau did go to the Trump wedding. Chuck insisted that he and Marla had recently walked hand in hand down Fifth Avenue. If Marla's walking down Fifth Avenue with Chuck, I mean, we're done. We get this package and I open it up and inside is this picture of Marla Maples naked. <gasps> I have never faxed anything to Donald Trump or Marla Maples regarding Marla Maples nude photographs. They were like, what do you think this is? And they point inside the shoe. And when I looked inside, I saw a stain. I'm watching the 10 o'clock news. Anchor says, we're going to go live to Mike Sheehan, who has breaking news on the Chuck Jones case. That moment is when I knew that all was right with the world. I'm your host, Trisha LaFarge, and this is Healed, the curious case of Marla Trump's shoes. You got to take me back into this room. I'm doing work at my desk. It's, you know, magic hour time. People are leaving the office and I'm sitting in there still working. Okay. And Jeanette and Higgins are doing what they were asked to do by me, which is take the shoes, pair them up and put them into individual baggies, right? Okay. In the middle of that... I hear Higgins say, oh, fuck, what's this? Gee, what's this? Something like that. So I look up, and then I see Higgins showing Giannetta the inside of a, of a shoe, like a pump, right? Believe me, before this, I had no idea what the word pump meant. So like, I, I, I got a real like education. Like gas pump? I don't know. And then I see Giannetta just start laughing. So I'm like, what's up? And they're like, you got, you got to see this, right? So I, I get up, and I roll over there, and I look, and you know, I see some sort of stain inside this particular shoe. Can you describe the stain? It it didn't look like a sweat stain, right? Sweat stains, a lot of times you see like, uh, you know, residue of like salt, right? Sweat. Right. This was more like a splotch. Like a Warshak test? Opie and Anthony friends out there will remember this description, right? It it looked like a map of Hawaii. (laughs) It looked like something had happened inside that shoe that was not normal. Okay. They were laughing. I was kind of horrified. I said, all right, what do you think this is? We kind of all kind of knew what we thought it may have been. So I, I did what any good prosecutor would do, and I ordered the, <laughs> the cops to recheck every shoe to see if there were any more splotches. They then went through all of the shoes again. Remember now, I think there were like five or six that had this unique splotch. Um, trace and, patterns. Trace patterns of something. And um, listen, Trish, I'm going to be honest with you, right? I, in my wildest dreams, would not think that a man would do that to a shoe. So you're right? telling me, you, you've you been on this case for some time now, and in all of that time, it never occurred to you that maybe there would be some islands in the uh, shoe. Look, I'm not a big foot guy, right? I mean, The look- guy admitted to having a foot fetish, and you never thought maybe Oahu or Kona... Little Maui. I'm not a big foot guy, right? But like, I remember Pulp Fiction, and like, there's this whole thing like, you gave Marcellus's girlfriend a foot massage, and there's discussion over whether or not that's sexual. And that's about as, that's about as feedy as I got. It was definitely the most unique situation that I was ever in in the Manhattan DA's office. Um, it was definitely the most unique situation I was in as a lawyer. Um, but that's what happened. There were splotches in the shoes. We identified those shoes that had the splotches, and we bagged them up, and I had the, Police officers take them to the serology department within the medical examiner's office. It never once crossed your mind that there would be splooge in the shoes. I was a 29-year-old 
assistant district attorney. Viral young man. I just never really thought that somebody would have that type of relationship with a shoe. And on New Year's Eve 1993, it is reported in the New York Daily News that the substance in the shoes is, in fact, male bodily fluid. Serology came back pretty quick, and they, and they told us that the splotch or the stain in the shoes was, in fact, semen. You know, look, the legal implications of this, I know it's funny and it's goofy and it's weird, but the legal implications are important because, again, for the criminal possession of stolen property charge, we had to prove that not only had he taken the shoes— but that he hadn't just borrowed them right. and was going to give them back. And if they are desecrated in any way, if they are damaged in any way, that is proof that he is not going to give them back. Certainly, if he put his male bodily fluid in the shoe, it is not something that he would then return to her. It's an important element of the crime of criminal possession of stolen property. And so we had to loop that up and lock that in and make sure that you know we had that piece of evidence um, ready to go. Right. So- this runs kind of back to the example you used with the joyriding statute when we were talking about it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the, the property itself needs to be stolen property, which means that you need to want to possess it for ever. Well, and, and not give it back, right? So that's the difference between joyriding. Right. So it is the district attorney's position that the semen in the shoes is further evidence of Chuck's intent to maintain possession of the shoes. Yes, that was our position. That was your position. However, B. Anthony Morosco, for one, did not see it this way. And here's what he had to say about the DA's impending motion for an order to have Chuck Jones submit to a blood or DNA test that would establish whether he created the stains in Marla's shoes. Quote, this is the most scurrilous thing I have ever seen in my 30 years as a lawyer. Manhattan District Attorney Robert Morgenthau goes to Donald Trump's wedding, and a week and a half later, this evidence pops up. <laughs> pops up. This is all about Donald Trump erroneously thinking that Chuck Jones has kinky pictures of Marla Maples. They are destroying this man and his family before he has a chance at vindication in this trial. If they ask for a blood test from my client, I'm going to ask for a blood test from Donald Trump. And I'm going to ask for all of the shoes that belong to Marla to see if there's stains on all of them, end quote. This sounds like a threat, Kev. He knew it wasn't a threat. I knew it wasn't a threat. It was It was Morosco playing to the press, just like Farringer played to the press, just like Chuck played to the press, just like, you know, Alasco played to the press. This is more playing to the press. Well, what do you think about Morasco saying that one week Morgenthau does the electric slide at the Trump wedding and the next week Chuck's got to give up the blood? He didn't say that. And if anybody knew Robert Morgenthau, they knew that he did not do the electric slide. But what did he do? The cha-cha slide? It was bad timing that this happened immediately after the wedding that Morgenthau was at. Yes, it was bad timing. But all we were saying is we are going to test the splotch to see if that is in fact Chuck Jones semen. That's all we were doing in that motion. What he was saying was he's going to have Trump tested. He's going to have all the shoes tested. Trish, it's all bullshit. It sells papers. It makes him sound like he knows what he's doing, but it's not a legal defense. And I knew that Andreas wasn't going to go for it anyway, so I didn't really care what Morosco was saying in the papers at that point. Okay, so you make the motion for Chuck's blood or DNA to be tested. We made the application to Judge Andreas. He signed the order um, immediately after, I think, the next day, a small amount of Chuck's blood was taken. It was analyzed. It was tested against the semen. And it came back that the semen in the shoes was, in fact, 
from Chuck Jones. Did Morasco ever move to have Trump tested? No, of course not. Look, again, Morasco was a really smart lawyer. He knew that he couldn't make that application, and he didn't, to his credit. Judge Andreas did, in fact, rule that the evidence recovered from Chuck's office was lawfully recovered under the legal doctrine of consent, and therefore the shoes, underwear, and guns recovered from Chuck's office would be admissible at trial. Congratulations, Kevin. Thank you. We were very happy with the outcome. With all the legal issues now settled, the trial was scheduled to begin and last-ditch efforts were made by the prosecutors to make the case go away yet again. Yeah, I mean, we had won the hearings. It was going to trial. I had the idea to go to my bosses and ask them to please allow me to re-offer an adjournment in contemplation of dismissal with the understanding that if Chuck abided by three conditions, those being get psychiatric care for his obsession with Marla and her shoes, yeah. stay away from Marla, and not get rearrested for six months. If he did those three things, then we would dismiss the indictment and he would have no criminal record. Those things seem like they should be pretty easy to do. I think that it was the proper and just disposition of this case. I thought that from the beginning. The problem was that Chuck didn't think that way, right? And Chuck was not ready. No, I, and I think he looked at this as this was his swan song. This was his, you know, big moment. Because remember, every time he came into court, it was packed, right? Yeah. The courtroom was packed with, with uh, you know, people from the press, with looky-loos, with, you know, DAs, <laughs> defense attorneys. Everyone, like, wanted a piece of this case. And Chuck was, the, you know, was the center of attraction. He had right? some delusions of grandeur popping off. I think he thought that maybe he'd be able to prove that, you know, we in some way had conspired against him. Um, I, again, I, I don't know what was in his head, right? But he refused that offer, which was, you know, shocking to me. I agree. Next up is jury selection. So tell us, what kind of jurors were you looking for? I mean, I was just looking for people who like understood. But like mostly women, right? So no, like people I, that understood what it would feel like to have your shoes taken from you. It came down to this. Are you going to be able to listen to me? And allow me to tell a story, right? Allow Did me- you have to ask people, had they heard of Donald Trump and could they be fair and impartial in judgment involving a case that was Donald Trump adjacent? These were all things that were asked probably by the judge. But I, I remember asking, you know, do you read the New York Post? Do you read the Daily News? Do you, have you heard do about you this Do you read case? the New York Times? Have Do you, you read it all? Have you heard about this case? Can you be fair and impartial, right? That's that's the the standard. Can you be fair and impartial? Look, you, S- Stevie Sirocco used to say, take a look at somebody's shoes. If the shoes look okay, then yeah, you, then you so pick that person. Yeah, so what are you talking person. about, Kevin? That's what I was looking at. I was looking at the, the, the potential jury's shoes. So you wanted good shoes or bad shoes? Better looking shoes, right? So somebody who cared about shoes. This is a bad analogy. Did you ask them if they believed that Donald Trump was the best sex Marla Trump had no, ever had? No, that's funny, but no, I didn't ask them <laughs> I asked, I asked if they could be fair and impartial. And if they, in my mind, I remember thinking, are they going to be able to understand a straightforward story? Because look, our story was very straightforward. You were right? trying to boil it down. Boil it down to this. Chuck Jones did not have permission to be in Marla Maples' apartment. He went in there. He took her shoes. He didn't have permission and authority to have those shoes. And then later, when they did a search of his place, they found the shoes, underwear, and guns. So after you picked the jury, did you guys open that day? No, I, I remember it the next morning, right? So the next morning, I had to deliver the opening statement. So got there. Court usually started at like 10 o'clock. You know, we, we were on the sixth floor. And um, 
Andrews' courtroom was on the 13th floor, so you just get on the elevator. And I remember like getting off the elevator on 13 and being like, oh, wow, there's a, there's a lot of people in the hallway. Yeah. And it was like, you know, this again, it's pre-OJ, right? And I'm not saying that there was OJ-like interest in this case, but there were a lot of press there, right? So we, I rolled through the hallway. You know, you get your, <laughs> you get your shopping cart kind of with the shoes in it. The Redwell. I got like Jeanette and Higgins with me too, right? So they're the cops who bring all the stuff in. And I remember going into, uh, you know, Andrews's courtroom, which, you know, Andrews's courtroom was a big, giant, majestic courtroom, right? Probably had like 25 spectator benches. Did Gianetta and Higgins sit at the table with you? No, 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 no. The cops have to sit outside because they're going to be potential witnesses. Oh, right, but they right. did help me bring this stuff in. Oh, okay. Right? And so then, you know, you sit at the the prosecution table, which people may or may not know. The prosecution table is next to the uh, jurors. jurors. And there's a reason for that because the, you want the defendant as far away from the jurors as you right. can in case the defendant gets unruly. I remember walking in, there's all this buzz going on in the courtroom. And, you know, the, the press people who I know are all like saying stuff and asking me questions. And I have to ignore that, right? I see Mikey Sheehan from Fox 5 News. He's there and like giving you the thumbs up. He waves, whatever. Uh, you know, at that point, look, he was very smart because he didn't want to look, because everybody wanted to know where Sheehan got that exclusive about right. the splooge in the shoes. And, you know, he, he knew he got it from me. I knew I gave it to him, but we didn't want the other press to know that. But anyway, we get in there, there's a buzz going on, and Chuck comes in, and like, this guy walks down the, the, the center aisle like he's the crown prince of, you know, Manhattan, right? Yeah. He's a, and he's waving the people. Pressing and, the flash. Like, and it's the opening statement, right? Yeah. It's like, and again, this big majestic courtroom, and, you know, Andrews comes out, all rise, boom, boom, and and we're, I'm about to get up and talk it's about showtime. fucking stolen shoes. Talk about an unreal situation. And so in this particular case, we opened, and we opened on the fact that, again, very straightforward case. Chuck broke into her place, took her stuff. When they arrested him, threw the bag over they like found Santa the Claus. Stuff. It was it was very 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 straightforward. Right. Morasco, on the other hand, had different ideas. Right. So he stood up in defense during the defense opening statement, and he talked about a vast conspiracy that was uh, orchestrated by Donald Trump himself. Right. And in, under his theory, uh, Donald Trump working in conjunction with Robert M. Morgenthau, other prosecutors within the DA's office, including myself, the New York City Police Department, maybe the mayor's office. Um, <laughs> everyone in the city had conspired to bring this case against Chuck Jones in order to discredit him and to make him look like a lunatic because he had some naked pictures and diaries of Marla that if they came out, then because he was a convicted felon, no one would believe him. Okay. It was a very, very interesting and imaginative opening statement. But how would they not believe him if they came out? I don't think it made much logical sense. Okay. We never found the naked pictures. We never found the diary. So right. I don't know what but that was all about. But this is- this, the, the theory is nonsensical. But I'll tell you this. You know who was really interested in that theory? All the press that was in the courtroom. Right. Because they wrote about it like crazy, right? Yeah. And, you know, the press, again, we've talked about this. The press was not interested in Kevin Hines's straightforward opening statement about, you know, the Chuck Jones and his ability. But see, this is another thing that I think you've said things like, you know- Morasco's a good attorney because he knows how to play the papers, but I don't believe that you're a good defense attorney because you played the papers. I actually believe the opposite. Mm -hmm. I believe you're a good attorney, defense attorney, because you you do a good job in the courtroom and you make arguments that make sense in the courtroom. What you do in the in the papers only pisses off the judge if the judge is piss, is Look, reading. I, the I agree with you, but yeah. again, this case is so unique, right? Yeah. And why is it unique? Well, Chuck Jones, first of all, 
is a very unique defendant, right? Right. He's also a publicist, right? And we know from the beginning when he got locked up, what did he do? He called the press, right? He was Good. talking to the press the whole time. He wanted his lawyers to talk to the press. His, he wanted his lawyers to p- play to the press. The first three rows of, of the courtroom every day was packed with press people. Right. These people would talk to Chuck on the way in and the way out. They would talk to Morosco on the way in and the way out. This was what Chuck wanted. He wanted a three-ring circus. He wanted to be in the center ring. And he got it. That's what he did. Yeah. And so whether or not you think Morosco was a good lawyer, I don't. I would say in the courtroom, he was a good lawyer. He knew what he was doing. He had a he had a defense that in his mind played not only to his client, but also to the p- potential jurors who may think Donald Trump is a piece of shit and he went after this guy and that's bad. And that was the defense. Whether or not it worked at the end of the day didn't really matter. And believe me, this fucking thing was a roller coaster, which yeah. we're about to talk about. And so did he do a good job? I think he did a good job for what Chuck wanted him to do. And I He's do trying th- to get what they call prejudicial spillover, I right? Think, yeah, and I, I think that in any criminal defense case, your client knows best what the facts and circumstances are, right? And so whatever facts and circumstances Chuck was feeding Morosco, Morosco bought into and decided, I'm going to have to construct this defense. And that's what he did. And his opening statement was about this conspiracy that I guess I was involved in, that I didn't know about, but I was involved in. And the first witness called in the people of the state of New York versus Charles Jones is none other than Marla Maples Trump on Friday, January 28th, 1994. So obviously, in order to prove our case, we have to put the victim on the stand. We, we decided to put Marla on the stand first. Okay. She, in a very calm and collective way, went through the facts of the case. And mm-hmm. what was a little bit different and interesting, you know, mm-hmm. I have to remember, Marla had just given birth. Yeah. Yeah, Tiffany, um, her daughter, uh, was, I think, you know, under six months old. Yeah, think- she was actually born in October of 1993, and we're in January. Hold on one second, let me November, December. Oh, so like three months. She's three months old. I'll tell you what, what a snapback. Yeah, no. Marla was looking pretty good. I can't believe Marla was actually married in in, in December. She, she had like she a 24-inch waist. She had a rough six months if you think about it, right? So she has she gives birth in October. Yeah. She gets married in December. She's on the stand in January. Yeah. I mean, look, say what you want. I mean, but what I do remember is... Uh, her having to take every couple hours because, you know, her testimony was a couple hours long. Yeah. She'd take a break and then she would then leave to go into the judge's robing room um, to- uh, To, to like, pump. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Trisha. Um, the other usage of pump. I didn't know that pump meant shoes. And I didn't know that pump meant that. Too. All right, gas station pump. pump. Uh. Normalize the pump. Okay. So anyway, she had to do that, which was kind of cool. So she started to testify. She started to testify. And one of the things that, look- I wouldn't say it was psychological torture, but you have to think about this, right? You start questioning your own your own mental ability at this point, right? You come home every day and something's missing from your house. It's kind of weird, right? At the time, she was dating Donald Trump. Right. And they would meet, you know, for dinner or, you know, he would pick her up from her apartment at Trump Park. And, you know, she talked about how she would come downstairs and she'd be late and he would be upset. Very upset. And say, why are you late? And, and she would say, because I can't find a certain pair of shoes. And he couldn't stand it, in fact. I called her Imelda Marcus. I said, nobody can use this many shoes. And she's not a clothes hog. You know, it's very interesting. But I got very angry at her a number of times. I said, how could you be using all these shoes? And she said, somebody's stealing my shoes. 
he did not believe that her shoes were missing, right? And and he was he was wondering to himself, have I gotten myself in a situation with someone who's a nut? Right. right? Her point of view is she's trying to explain to her boyfriend that somebody's stealing stuff out of my apartment. Now, look, the name of the apartment she lived in was Trump Park, meaning that he was the owner of the building. His security is in charge, right? Right. So she's telling him somebody's breaking in. Now, if you're Trump, you're probably like, look, I'm a landlord. There's no way people are breaking into her apartment. She must be a crazy person. I think at that point- And this is allegedly going on for over a year. Yes, that's correct. And um, I think in the beginning, she probably questioned herself to say, why do I think this stuff is missing? But then it came to a point where it was just, it was too much to bear. So she explained it to him and, and you know, he did the right thing eventually and, and had Trump security put the, the camera in. Look, it's strange. It's goofy. You know, the jurors laughed at times. It was very light at that point. But she was going through a situation where she later learned that somebody was breaking to her house and stealing her shit. And that's, that's you know, that can be harrowing. So she explained all that. She didn't want to believe that this was happening. Because you can imagine a woman living alone in Manhattan during a time when crime is out of control, thinking someone is in here taking my stuff. And the worst part of it is no one was believing her. And I think that was a time when she was able to explain how she was really feeling. And, and, and I think she was victimized and she was able to explain to the jury how this strange event, weird event, made her feel victimized. Okay, so Marla feels victimized. The prosecution asked Marla Maples whether or not she ever paid Chuck Jones for any of the work that he did for her as a publicist, to which she responded, no. I never paid him. Well, Marla, now you got me all fucked up. I've actually had a publicist before and they don't work for free. And they certainly do not work for free for six and a half years. Look, Chuck was doing well for himself, right? We've talked about this. He had a million dollar house in Greenwich, Connecticut. He obviously had a successful business. Did he take on a client who didn't pay him? Yeah. You know what? You've done this. I'm a criminal defense attorney. I've, I've taken on clients who ended up not paying me. There was this understanding between them that he was doing work for her for free. Yeah, but when she got a $600,000 deal for No Excuses Jeans as the spokesperson or employed to do an interview for Diane Sawyer, which was the top rated interview ever for Diane Sawyer's show at the time, and she got paid to do that, she never thought, oh, you know what, maybe I should pay Chuck for all of the work that he's done. Now, I am not blaming the victim here. Let's be clear. Chuck is responsible for his actions. But I am saying to myself, nothing is for free in life. Young, beautiful, smart, intelligent, savvy women out there, you need to know that when you think there are no strings attached to stuff, there are strings attached. And we all need to be responsible for our part. She is not responsible for his obsession with her. She is not responsible for the conduct that he committed. But I'm just saying I'm starting to get a little bit more of a glimpse into the questions that I posed at the beginning of this thing of like, What are they talking about? What is Tom Fitzsimmons talking about when he says the way that Marla and Trump treated Chuck? That's all I'm saying. I think that we know now, looking back, that anybody who was in that Trump orbit was fucked up in some way as a result of Trump, right? Did Marla have a hand in that with Chuck? Sure. I mean, but at at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter, right? We brought that out on direct because we knew that was going to be part of the defense. The That's defense, a great idea. The defense being, Absolutely. he was shit on, he was treated like shit, he had all this no, secrets. Right, so that's why we did it. It's really, it's I was really shocked, not, it's is not all I'm relevant. saying, when I sure. heard her say it. Yeah. Should she have paid him? Sure. At the end of the day, the dude did very well with the Trump organization, so he was making plenty of money with them. 
My favorite part of that testimony is when she says the last straw was when she went to look for a pair of blue suede shoes (laughs) and they weren't there. And she had remembered wearing them just a few days ago. Also, how could she not know it was Chuck? I mean, who else was it going to be? Again, we're talking 1993, 92. Crime is out of control. Burglaries, 100 a day, right? I don't think you think your friend's coming in and stealing your shoes. I mean, that how bizarre is that? And what a betrayal. And that's, that's the other thing she talked about in her, in her testimony, which I thought was really, really telling. When she explained to the jury that when she found out it was Chuck Jones, when she saw that videotape, she felt betrayed. It was a very emotional time. I just kept asking, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Was he was just very cloudy. You know, he was very, it's almost like he wasn't there. He just kept sort of staring. And, and the only thing he would repeat is that it's, that it's over. It doesn't matter. She did a good job, and, and uh, that's what she needed to do. And, and uh, then it was time for her to be cross-examined. This is when the fireworks really start. She testified on direct on a Friday. Yeah. And then that following Monday, we began the cross-examination of Marla Maples Trump by B. Anthony Marasco. We have footage of Marla handling some boots. Now, I've never looked on the inside of my boots before. So, what about the so bottoms? The bottoms are general. This, this is um, a pair, as I recall, I had in my bag, in my walk-in closet, as I showed you. I actually didn't imagine how badly damaged these boots are, but the boots, they're white cowboy boots, and they're slit from the top of the boot straight down the center, both the left and the right boot. And so she's she's holding them up and he's questioning her about them very, very aggressively. And he's asking her if they're in the same condition as the last time she saw them. He's getting really, really frustrated with her. Are they in the same condition as the last time you saw them before they're, they were discovered in Jones's office? They look like they've been roughed up quite a bit, actually, sir. They've been roughed up after the last time you saw them? And- I'm so confused. Objections form. He says they're roughed up. And she says, I don't know. I'm so confused. Yeah. Then Judge Andreas jumps in and he tries to clarify what Morosco is asking her. What were you thinking about all this? Looking back on it now? Yeah. I think that Morosco had a point of view. Yeah, I do. I agree. And his point of view was from his client. And his client has told him over and over and over again, she's mean, she's nasty, she doesn't care about me, she doesn't care about anybody, she only cares about herself. Now, if you're a defense attorney, what you want to do is you want to show that to the jury. Yeah. Because remember, part of the part of the defense is she's a bad person. Even if this happened, you should just throw it all out because it's some kind of conspiracy and you know she's a bad person, so you don't really need to sympathize with her jury. So I'm going to show her to be a psycho, a bad person. Yeah. The way you do that is you go hard at the witness, right? Yeah. And this dude, he went hard. So I, I think in this particular case, you know, obviously they were roughed up because Chuck had done something with them. Right. And whether or not he splooged in them or he cut them up for his own enjoyment, I don't know. But obviously they, she didn't cut them up. Right. So I think he was trying to shake her up, trying to get her to be uh, not sympathetic. If you are trying to make the victim look like a bad person, you can't do it by being a bad person yourself as the defense attorney. You get no mileage with the jury by the jury not liking you. If the jury doesn't like the victim, great. But if the jury hates you, you're done for. You're just done for. And and I know what he's trying to do. And I know why she's confused. The jury must have been lost. 
I mean, this must have been great for you. Certainly the press loved it, right? The press loved every second of it. And I think, again, Morosco played to the press just like Chuck played to the press. And I think also what was going on was that he thought if I could confuse her, if I can get her angry, if I can get her off balance, that she will explode on the stand and then I could show her to be the bad person that she is. I mean, that is what his client told him. I'm not saying his, his theory was correct, but I do understand the theory. The theory is no matter how bad they don't like me, if I can get her to explode, if I can get Marla Maples to show her true colors, the jury won't like her and therefore they will decide not to side with her in the case. It, you know, at that point, it didn't work because she didn't explode. Right. I she, mean, what's more jarring is seeing two boots with huge slices down the center of both of them. And then, as you said, it gets worse. The next thing we see is Kevin's got a big bag of evidence. Yep. And Morasco wants the panties. Yes. He would like the panties uh, taken out of the bag of evidence. So what do you do? Well, look, there, there is a clip of me going into the bag of evidence and taking out certain uh, pieces of underwear. Underwear. Underwear Thank that Morasco had asked for. And yes, I did not use gloves. I understand that. Everyone on our production team thinks it's hilarious that I didn't use gloves. It was 1994. We didn't worry about gloves at that point. So yes, in my bare hands, I am touching Marla Maple's underwear. It's just funny the way he asks for it and you kind of like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. Get the, yes, uh, yes, Trish, the, I, I was excited to touch her no, underwear. No, 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 that's not what I'm implying. I'm not implying that it's let you do it as business-like as it can be. Just, oh yeah, yeah, the, the evidence, hold on. If you told me in fucking law school that I'd be sitting at a prosecution table touching underwear belonging to Marla oh, oh, yeah, Maple's Oh sure, let me get the hand evidence. So exactly. he takes it. Morasco puts it down in front of her and then he asks her to stand up and hold it in front of her. Yeah, this is where he crossed the line in my view. And then Marla Maples, her reaction. Could you stand up and hold it in front of you so the jury? No, sir, I don't want to touch this. I object. First she says no, and then she's just horrified. Her nonverbal responses turn into a three-act play in my view. Your co-counsel objects. Morasco's talking over Andreas, and Andreas is talking over Morasco. And then they ask her to get gloves, and then she's just hemming and hawing. And I mean, you would think she's never been through anything in her life because she's just yeah. But I mean, look, the Marla we saw on direct, the you know as you described her, cool and calm, and is all of a sudden out the window, and she's just in a tizzy, and and finally the all he gets out of this whole entire thing is that they're blue and they're a size medium. But he's like, well, you say that they're yours. You said they're yours, don't you? Was there anything uh, specific about them, the brand or the demarcations? I don't know what the fuck he's trying to do. No, I tell you exactly what he's doing. He's playing to the press, right? Because I can tell you in these moments when this was happening, all I heard behind me was the press buzzing, right? It was going to be a headline in the newspaper the next day. It was going to be some stupid headline that the post of the news made up, you know, Fuzzy Naval or Georgia Peach or Whatever. He was playing to the press. Why? Because his, his client wanted him to, number one. Number two, it was his big moment in the sun. It right? makes Marla, no sense. Think about it. Marla Maples, Trump on the stand, and I'm cross-examining her. Look, the guy the guy took his shots, right? Andreas let it go too far. It pissed me off a lot, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is she's the victim of the crime. The fact that he's making her stand up from the witness stand and hold her panties in the air, it had nothing to do with the case. It right? had nothing to do with the case. Well, I mean, this is this is where I thought he crossed the line. Going back to the nude photos, yes, there is a moment where Morasco um, does ask, as you said, Marla, about the the nude photos. Under a broad net 
definition of family photographs. Will you include nude photographs taken by your married lover? Not at that time. No, sir, he wasn't married at that time, sir. I'm sorry. And also, at that time, no, that's not what I noticed was missing. There was a whole, it was my family shots of when I was a baby of my mother's that were taken. One of my favorite moments of Marla's testimony, because her face after he says married lover is just, it's so priceless. My favorite part is when, when she said that uh, there were pictures that my husband had taken yes. of me yes. when I was unclothed. Unclothed, yes. Unclothed. Oh, that my husband had taken me. It's just so... It's it's really epic. Look, the bottom line is those naked pictures never showed up, right? So again, like again, the newspapers are going crazy, duties and bloody. It doesn't matter. That shit never showed up. So I still maintain he was a very bad lawyer because this is a, a, a much ado about nothing, and you know where there's no there there. Again, he's trying. He's playing to the salaciousness of the case. You have to remember, Chuck is in charge of the defense. Chuck is telling him what to do. There's no doubt in my mind because Morasco was a good lawyer. He was a very experienced lawyer. He was being paid by a client who was telling him to do things that he probably shouldn't have done. But like, should he have done it? Probably not. But he did. The other thing is this: trying to get Marla off her game was something very important to him. On Friday. She had testified for a number of hours and did a stellar job. And what he decided to do was try to shake her up. And he tried a number of different ways, right? I think he crossed the line in a bunch of ways, but she did a great job. She got off the stand, um, and I felt very good once she had She was shaken, not stirred, uncrossed. She was shaken, but, I mean, look, they, they, didn't, they didn't get her to say anything that was, that was problematic for our No, case. it wasn't irreparable. Okay, we are on to Kevin's favorite topic, shoe value. Yes. So one of the things we had to do, as we discussed, is prove that the value of the shoes, the replacement value of the shoes was over $1,000. And that was important because if we were unable to prove that, then it would be only a misdemeanor and not a felony. Right. Most of these shoes were not in the condition that one could take them to a fancy consignment store and sell them for a high value in order for them to reach an aggregate of $1,000, which would make it possible for the prosecution to reach that felony quantity. And so for me, being a fan of vintage shoes, this whole replacement value thing was a big deal. And it was a big deal for me before I saw the condition of these shoes because mm -hmm. I happen to know there are shoes, Charles Jordan shoes, Marla's brand, right now currently $350, $200. So somebody wears some shoes, yeah. they wear them for a while, and then they sell them to somebody else? Yes, sir. And you put your dirty feet in the shoes that somebody else had their dirty feet in? You're clean or dirty feet, hon. One time I walked into a vintage store with my father and my father said to me, wait, are these clothes old? And I said, yeah. And he said, I'll give you $100 to walk out of the store right now. And I said, <laughs> sure. And we did. So when I first started looking at the fact that your office argued that there was no market for these shoes. Correct. I was mind fucked. 
I have a friend who worked for Calvin Klein, Donna Karen, different people. And I said, they're arguing that there's no value for old shoes. And I was like, what a terrible argument. Why would they argue this? Now I kind of understand there really isn't a market for shoes that are in the condition that the shoes were. Therefore, what the jury should consider would be the market value of the replacement for new shoes. So in order to do that, we, the prosecution, called a shoe expert. So the prosecution brought in a shoe expert, Richard Jacobson, who was the head of the Foot Fashion Association. He testifies that the collection is now basically worthless and that there is no normal market for this kind of distressed merchandise. We found this guy because he was the president of this trade association. And, you know, we had him in obviously before the trial. And he told us that given the 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 wear and tear and stains in and around those shoes, that there would be no market value. So therefore, he then analyzed the shoes themselves and decide, OK, if they had to be replaced, how much it would cost Marla uh, to replace those shoes, and that, and that was over $1,000. It was, I mean, it would be well over $1,000 to replace over 30 pairs of brand new Charles Jordan shoes. Yeah, I mean, it, we didn't think that this was going to be an issue. I mean, he he was a very, very, very good witness when it comes to this because he had that type of expertise. But the funny thing about uh, Jacobson's testimony is that from the stand, he admitted that like our Chuck, he also had a thing about shoes. And he stated, quote, I have a thing about shoes. I catch myself looking at shoes all the time. He said to Morosco, I even find myself looking at your shoes. And Morosco said, without missing a step, well, after the trial, I'll introduce you to the defendant. Could your association use a publicist who knows a lot about shoes? Then the judge got into the action. What about my shoe? What will be the resale value on this? holding his leg in the air from the bench. Yeah, look, when I told you this was a three-ring circus, this was a fucking three-ring circus, right? I'm sitting there trying to be professional, and these gentlemen have decided to turn it into some kind of comic relief. And, <laughs> and look, I was sitting there with my black wingtip shoes that I wore every day, same pair of shoes every day, and uh, wondering to myself, what has my career turned to? Jury was laughing, the press is laughing, Morosco and Andreas and Jones. They everybody got a big thinks kick everybody out got of a it. big kick out of it. I was sitting there watching my career go down the tubes. But hey, Jacobson finished his testimony by telling the jury that the replacement value for these shoes was far over a thousand dollars. So we had proven that aspect of our case in my view. Now the defense, on the other hand, said, No, 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 no. There is a market for these shoes, and you could sell them even in the condition they are. However, it would be less than $1,000. And so as you do in a trial, they each put on experts, the battle of the experts. And when the defense got up, when it was their turn to call their witness, he called his illegitimate market gal, tag sale entrepreneur and used shoe expert, Gloria DePrado. She came in to testify for the defense. So yeah. tell me about Gloria. I mean, I don't know where he found her, but she came in and said that she was an expert in flea markets. I don't know what the heck that means, but that's what she said she was. And Andrews let her testify. And you got to remember, like we're in this huge, giant courtroom, press, 
people watching this shit. And here comes Gloria DePrado, right? Like a middle-aged woman with big giant glasses, kind of frumpy dressed. And she gets up on the stand and she pulls out, Trisha, this gigantic magnifying glass. Like, I, like this is not Sherlock Holmes shit. Like we're talking about literally like a foot in diameter. No, it's huge. I've seen the photograph. And we roll, like, you know, they roll the shoes up to her. And one by one, she takes the shoes out. She puts it under her magnifying glass and she goes, 25 cents. Throws it on the side. 50 cents, a dollar. And she added up the 60 shoes yeah. and said at the end of the day that it was the whole thing was worth maybe about, you know, $120. But again, it's an important aspect of the trial because if they can prove that there is a resale value and it's under $1,000, then we haven't proven that aspect of the case. So bottom line is, as far as the value goes, if the jury believes that Marla didn't give him permission to take the shoes then they have to go with the DA's theory on value because Chuck, he shouldn't be receiving the benefit of the diminished value in the shoes. Bottom line, because if he didn't desecrate them, the value of the shoes on a whole is over a thousand. Jacobson was the president of the trade association. Foot fashion association. Whatever it was called, he was in charge of it. And so he was a great witness that we found and we prepped and we put on the stand. Talk about a 180. The Prado comes rolling in with this magnifying glass and she's like, I am an expert in flea markets. And Maybe you're like, she is, but I still think my argument is better. He shouldn't get the benefit. He he lowered the value himself. So why should we give him the benefit? He he's just he's the one who damaged the property. He lowered it. Yeah, of course. I mean, on the on the legal side, you're correct, but that's not we were in a fucking circus. It wasn't it wasn't a courtroom anymore. It turned into a three-ring circus. And so, you know, look, I buckled up, took the ride. Their witnesses were very strange. DePrado wasn't the strangest. We've come to the moment in time to discuss the testimony of none other than Tom Fitzsimmons. Yeah, so after the after the prosecution had called all of its witnesses, Marla testified, the cops testified, um, Pezzo and Calamari testified, you know, shoe expert uh, Jacobson. Um, we rested our case. Defense called the Prado, as we just talked about. And their second witness was uh, Tom Fitzsimmons, who we've heard a little bit about before. Former boyfriend of Marla Maples, ex-cop, actor, maybe fiance, used to be the beard of Donald and Marla. Team Chuck. Right. And what he was going to testify to was that Marla and Chuck had this relationship where Marla would order him around, you know, go in my apartment and get this stuff for me. Go in my apartment and do this. You have permission to go in my apartment. Pick this up, drop this up. Right. And he testified to all this stuff. And he also testified to the fact that he was present when Marla asked Chuck to go get shoes and go get you know, clothes and go get stuff out of my apartment and give it to the Salvation Army and like dispose of it. And so this was all stuff that was really, really, really vital to the defense case. And if the jury believed him, right, then certainly Chuck would have been acquitted. So you got to shred him. I got to go after him, right? And and how do you do that? How do you prove somebody is is not telling the truth on you the stand? You attack their credibility. Exactly. And so how do you do that? You find out as much as you can about him. So we did a deep dive is what I like to call it. And we grabbed, we grabbed his uh, police record because he used to be a police officer. We grabbed his personnel file and we found that, you know, I don't remember if he was fired or if he resigned from the police, but he had some problems, right? Right. Um, calling in sick too much or whatever. We knew rumors through Marla and other people who were involved in the case that he may, you know, he may be somebody who was kind of a bar fly, somebody who drank a lot during the day. We also knew that, like, he wanted to be a screenwriter and a, an actor and a, and a talent guy. I mean, he he just, you know, he's one of these guys who had a lot of dreams in his head. But but that didn't make him a liar. I mean, no, being a beard no. and 
maybe being a drunk made him a liar, but you know, he I, had some issues. I had to go after him, right? So what I did was I put an investigator on her and they, we followed him around for a couple of days. And what we found was wow, that he would go- Sneaky. I don't know if it's sneaky. In my view, he was going to perjure himself. How do I attack that person is by going after his credibility. We find out that he goes from bar to bar to bar, has you know breakfast, lunch, and dinner in bars for a couple of days. But that's good news, right? It's good news for me. I'm like, okay, this is the guy. This is this is who I'm dealing with. When he gets up on the stand and says all these things, which he does on direct, and he basically blows a huge hole in Marla's testimony and basically is saying that Marla perjured herself, now it's time for me to like, you know, show the fangs and go out to get him. And that's that's what I tried to do. So you're basically going to say that you're a drunk and you're a liar, so nobody should believe you. I mean, that was my plan. It didn't really work out that way. It went a little sideways, as we say. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time ever on Healed, Kevin J. Hines is going to read with me excerpts from the New York Daily News, and he is going to play none other than Kevin J. Hines. Great. Mr. Fasimmons, let me ask you this. You spend a lot of time in a bar called Mumbles, don't you? Yes. As a matter of fact, you spend all day long in Mumbles, right? Yes. And you spend the whole day there drinking, right? I mean, you drink a lot, Mr. Fitzsimmons, true? Not as much as you do. (laughs) An incredulous Hines, who was the son of Brooklyn District Attorney Charles Hines, asked Fitzsimmons... Not as much as I drink. Have we drank together, sir? No. But you have a reputation. Kevin J. Hines. What just happened? Well, I mean, look, this is obviously where I made a mistake on my cross-examination of Mr. Fitzsimmons, right? They teach you in law school, never ask a question on cross-examination. You don't know the answer to. You don't know the answer to. And I obviously did not know the answer. Look, I will say this. You didn't know the answer if you drank together? Well, I mean, look, (laughs) I got to tell you, back in the day, I drank with a lot of people, right? But here's, (laughs) here's the truth. I did a very poor job of cross-examining Mr. Fitzsimmons at that point. When he said to you, not as much as you do. Yes. What was the first thing that went through your mind? First thing was like, wow, that's an impressive answer. Stevie Sirocco was there, right? Stevie Sirocco was, it was my mentor in the DA's office. And he was very, very, very well-liked and well-respected prosecutor. He was in the courtroom that day. And the way he described it was, as soon as Fitzsimmons said that to you, Kevin, you looked like you were in a standing eight count. I felt like I got hit with like a left hook. I was, you know, stumbling around the courtroom. All of a sudden, everything goes into slow motion, right? And like, I'm looking up at the bench and I see Judge Andrews getting angry. And I, I turn over to Morosco and he's got this shitting and grin on his face. And then I'm looking at the jurors, they're staring at me. And behind me, I hear the press kind of clickety-clack and everybody's writing shit. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, what have I done? This is going to be the front page of the New York Post tomorrow. Drunk DA? And all I'm thinking about is, I'm done. And then Andreas loses his shit, throws the jury out, throws Fitzsimmons off the stand, and comes off the bench and stands in the well of the courtroom and starts making threats. He's threatening to declare a mistrial. Next time on the season finale of Healed. The shoe bandit takes the stand. I've had this problem for a long time. I couldn't deal with it after a while. Finally, I'm going to be able to actually speak to Chuck Jones in a courtroom in front of a jury and ask him the questions that I want to ask him. And then a bomb dropped. These notes basically were exactly what Chuck needed to show that he had permission and authority to be inside her place, 
to take her stuff and to leave with it. Which is the heart of your case. It's the only part of our case. These notes were crafted in such a way that if believed, the whole case goes down the toilet. Has the jury agreed upon a verdict? Yes, yes we have. Will the defendant please rise? I'll say you with the count one, charging the defendant Charles Jones with the crime of burglary in the second degree. Guilty or not guilty? Healed is a Just Kill production produced by Tandis Karami, Luke Groneman, and Tyler Patrick Jones. It's written by Kevin J. Hines and myself, Trisha LaFoch. The Healed theme music was written by Chad Crouch. Additional shout out to Mike Schaffernack, our editing wizard, our sound engineer, Kyle Raps, and to Max Alcabez, owner of Pink Cloud Studios in Los Angeles, where we record these shoescapades. Follow us on our Instagram at healed.podcast or check us out on our website, healedpodcast.com. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Healed.